Hi. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Professor Elizabeth Clare. This week, we're going to do two things. First, my friend Joanna Coleman and I are going to talk about what goes in a scientific paper, and then we're going to discuss the topic of co-evolution. Then in part two, Joanna and I are actually going to read a scientific paper on co-evolution. We're going to do it together and discuss the contents and how we approach that. Welcome to the podcast, Joanna. Why don't you introduce yourself? My name is Dr. Joanna Coleman, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Biology at Queens College at the City University of New York. Thanks, Joanna. So the first task for us today is to discuss scientific literature. And we as scientists write papers and read papers all the time. And we ask our students to read papers, but we're not really very good at teaching them how to do that. So I thought the first thing we could do is you and I can talk about what goes in a paper and how we approach them as scientists. And hopefully if we do that, maybe we'll demystify the process for some of the students. So let's start with the first question. What is a scientific paper? And if I was to ask you what primary scientific literature is, how would you answer? First, it's in a scholarly journal. In this case, it describes an original empirical study that the authors did. So they report their methods and results, which is one key clue that it's primary literature. But the primary literature also contains uh, systematic reviews, which will also report methods and results. But they're different in that they don't involve an original empirical study. Instead, what the authors are doing is analyzing the literature on a specific topic. Okay, so there's two forms of experiment we might find in literature then. The go out and do a new novel experiment, probably in the wild somewhere or in a lab, and the reanalyze a lot of different sources of data to see if there's patterns across data sets. I get that. And I think to that I would also add that there are true reviews of a topic that scientists write and publish, where I may just want to summarize all the known facts about a particular subject. And that's not really primary literature. That's more secondary reviews. Before I ask Joanna how she goes about reading a scientific paper, let's introduce the sort of general structure of a paper. Most scientific papers start with an abstract, which is a little summary of everything that's going to happen inside, kind of like the book jacket of a novel. And then they've got an introduction, which gives you the background on the subject, a methods that describes what they've actually done, results where the data are presented and analyzed, often with figures and tables, and a discussion section where the data is placed into some sort of context with what else we know about the subject. So Joanna, I want to know, do you read these from beginning to end, or do you read them in a specific order? I know that I have my own particular style of this, but I'm curious what you do first. If I'm going deep, I ignore the abstract and I read the paper start to finish, though I also skip back and forth. Now, this particular paper is in my area of of expertise as a bat specialist, so I can skim certain parts, especially the intro and discussion. And here what I'm looking for would be key elements that interest me. I also tend to very closely scrutinize the methods and results and then think about whether they justify the interpretations and conclusions that the authors have made. And then when it comes to figures, particularly charts, I teach my students to walk themselves through them, like what type of chart it is, 
what variable is on each axis and what relationship it shows, because that's exactly what I do in my head whenever I'm confronted with a new type of chart or one whose message isn't clear right away. Interesting. I don't think I approach it that way. I think probably I generally read the abstract first to get an idea if I'm interested in the paper or to give me some sort of like preview of what's coming. And then probably skip to the figures and the tables. And that's one of the reasons I'm usually really, really stressing to students that they have to stand alone. They've got to have a caption that tells me what I'm looking at without reading all the text because I naturally don't look at the text first. And then I go back to those sections and probably read the discussion of their results, then maybe the introduction to see what sort of general knowledge I've missed, and then would only later go to methods and results-specific data. And really only particularly if I am doing, as you say, taking a really deep look at a paper. If I'm just trying to get general knowledge, abstract, figures, discussion, then introduction, probably in that order. I have to agree with you, especially if I don't want to go super deep. So I would probably do something very similar. And I could not agree more with what you said about the figures. They need to tell the story very effectively and the caption needs to be self-contained. Before we go any further, you and I, full disclosure, have to point out that we're going to default to bat examples over and over again today when we talk about this paper and this topic because we're both bat biologists. And I think since we have such similar research areas of being primarily bat biologists, I wanted to ask you first, did you always want to be a bat biologist or a biologist at all? Did you go straight from some undergrad degree into a faculty post at New York? Or has your route there been different? And I'm always curious how people got to the scientific careers they're in. So before we talk about bat biology and coevolution and then read a paper on bats and coevolution, Give me an idea. How did you get to where you are now? I am from Montreal, Quebec, where I went to McGill University for a Bachelor of Science in Agriculture, and my major was Environmental Biology. And then I did a Master of Science in Renewable Resources, and my thesis research was on the ecology of a specific raptor called the Sharpshin Talk also at McGill. And then I took three years off to work uh, before I left for Calgary, Alberta, where I did my PhD at University of Calgary and studied the urban ecology of bats in the prairies. Graduated in 2010, and then I went to live in Qatar for a year, where I taught cell biology and human anatomy and physiology at University of Calgary in Qatar. And then in 2012, I went to Singapore, where I joined National University of Singapore, teaching and researching in environmental studies, conservation biology, and urban ecology. And then in August 2021, I moved to Queens College at the City University of New York, where I'm an assistant professor in urban ecology. And this seems to be pretty common these days. A lot of us move around quite a lot in our early parts of our careers. Did you always want to be a professor? Actually, I wanted to be an entertainer. My mom came to Canada as a refugee, and no one in her family had ever gone past secondary school. My dad is from Canada and is now a lawyer, and education was his ticket. So they were both very insistent that I go to uni, and I let them persuade me. 
And then at first I studied languages and translation. And it took me almost three years to discover my passion for environmental issues and conservation. And I only really ever thought of being a professor after my master's and PhD supervisors had such hugely positive impacts on me. Really interesting. I mean, I had sort of the same experience. I didn't go to university thinking I was going to be a professor, but when I got there, I just couldn't imagine ever leaving. I loved campus and I loved the atmosphere of campuses and I'm still there all these years later, just teaching now rather than being the student. Great. Okay. So before we can go on to actually read a paper together, we have to actually introduce the topic. And the topic for today is coevolution. And we're going to read a paper about coevolution. But before that, can you tell us, as an urban ecologist, how do you define coevolution? It's when two or more species have some level of interdependence and they reciprocally affect each other's evolution. Species A evolves an adaptation that makes the interaction more beneficial or less harmful to it, and then species B does likewise. Different types of interactions can lead to coevolution, but the closer the relationship, the more likely it is to occur. Okay, that's a really good, simple definition. And I think the only thing I'd add as a geneticist is that they probably are having reciprocal influences on each other's genomes, although that's also implied by your description of them as being evolving together. Of Evolution is generally defined as a change in genome structure or allele frequency over time. The other thing I often remind my students is that there's multiple types of coevolution. We talk about antagonistic or mutualistic coevolution as being these general categories. Do you want to give us a definition of those? Okay, so in mutualistic coevolution, there's a benefit of the relationship to both species. So, for instance, a flowering plant and its animal pollinator. Selection favors traits that raise the likelihood that its pollen will get transferred to a different flower of the same species. And for the animal, it favors traits that maximize the benefits of floral visits. I guess in the tightest mutualisms, both partners co-evolve traits to make the relationship more exclusive. So for instance, the flower Centropogon nigricans has a white flower that opens at night, emits a pungent odor, and has a super long corolla with a huge nectar reward. And the tube-lipped nectar bat has evolved a tongue that's one and a half times its body length with brushes at the tip. So it's really the only one that can get at this nectar. But then in antagonistic coevolution, the interaction benefits one partner and harms the other. So for instance, parasite and host. For the parasite, selection favors traits that enhance its ability to live on or in another species and consume its tissues. For the host, selection favors traits that help it get rid of parasites. So for instance, bats have ectoparasites that live on the outside of their body. And their main anti-parasite strategy is grooming, which they spend lots of time on. But there are two families of blood-sucking bat flies that only parasitize bats and have evolved traits like being able to run through their fur really fast and strong claws to grab on 
as ways to avoid being picked off. That's a really good, clear definition. And of course, if you're a bat biologist, the classic example of coevolution we always teach is the relationship between moths and bats. Do you want to describe that one for us? So this is antagonistic coevolution, the evolutionary arms race that occurs as a predator evolves weapons to help it capture and eat its prey, and the prey evolves defenses to help it avoid being eaten. It's really happened quite famously with bats and moths, where bats use echolocation to hunt at night, and echolocation works like sonar. They emit a high-frequency ultrasound call that returns an echo when the call bounces off an object, including prey, like a moth. But then some moths have evolved ears that let them hear bat calls so they can initiate defensive flight maneuvers like turning suddenly or diving down, and that makes them harder to catch. But then, in turn, bats, some of them, have evolved stealth echolocation calls that are too quiet for the moths to hear. And in turn, some moths have evolved to emit high-frequency clicks that cause the bat to stop its attack because the clicks startle the bat or they signal to the bat that the moth is unpalatable or the clicks jam the bat calls by messing with the bat's ability to process the echoes. I once heard this described as the life dinner hypothesis, and I cannot remember where I read that. But the concept is that if you're the moth and you make a mistake, you lose your life. If you're the bat and you make a mistake, you just lose your dinner. And so this is probably a totally asymmetrical relationship where the selection pressure to not make a mistake is a lot higher on the moth than the bat. I've never the heard that term, but I love it. Okay, so Joanna and I have now introduced what a paper looks like in scientific literature and the sections. And we've introduced the topic, which is coevolution, and we've set you up for the fact that it's going to be a bat example because we're bat people. In part two of this podcast, Joanna and I are actually going to read a really nice little story about bat-pitcher plant coevolution. And pitchers are those carnivorous, um, big sort of buckets that some plants have learned to produce to capture insects. But in the case of the story we're going to talk about, they've learned to do something different. So join us over on part two, where Joanna and I are going to read a paper together, talk about what's in each section, and also just discuss a really cool example of moth-plant coevolution. 